Welcome to the Travel Diary Learning Journey to the Human Mind, episode 10. The next couple of episodes will not actually be technically on psychology because we also had to do a unit on critical thinking. So I thought I'd divide the material up into two episodes. So I didn't find this all that interesting, but uh, uh, for the sake of completeness, I thought I would still cover it in this podcast series. So critical thinking. Um, The first part, I will discuss pseudoscience and then the art of persuasion, i.e. rhetoric. First of all, as always, we'll start off with a series of definitions. So what is a belief? A belief is described as being something which is propositional. What is propositional? Proposition, something that is propositional can be expressed as a declarative sentence. What is a declarative sentence? A declarative sentence is something that can be right or wrong. And when it becomes a declarative sentence, such as the earth goes around the sun, it then becomes a claim. And a claim can be objective or subjective. An example of an objective claim is that there is life on Mars because it can actually scientifically be demonstrated if that is the case. A subjective claim might be something like Jimi Hendrix was the greatest guitarist in history, which for me is actually fairly objective, but I guess it's because it's down to people's point of view uh, and opinions, it's a subjective claim. And at the heart of every claim, there is an issue and an issue which we are answering. So, for example, if you say um, one day AI will become more intelligent than humans in terms of general intelligence, I guess the issue it is answering is, you know, can uh, machines and AI become more intelligent than humans? We also defined an argument which is a series of declarative statements. It has to have a conclusion, obviously, and it has to have one or more premises. Uh, Each of these are declarative um, sentences. And of course, the idea is that the premises lead to the conclusions. And to the extent that it leads to the conclusions, or or to the extent that it doesn't, it uh, affects the, the validity of that argument. So what is science? Science is the quest to find empirical uh, answers to empirical questions. And it is something that is driven by data. And therefore, it's always tentative. If new data comes in, um, some of the ideas will have to be changed, as often happens, uh, sometimes incrementally and sometimes in great revolutions. Uh, within science. So we talked about the difference between verification and falsification. The difference between science and everyday thinking is in everyday thinking, we look to verify. So we have kind of, we look around the world and we observe and maybe we're influenced by other people's points of view. And then we come up with an idea about how the world works, kind of a little mini model in our heads. 
and then we look for instances of, of proof that we are correct. We look for verification, and that's the way normal thinking works. The trouble is, there are so many verifying um, evidence for any idea you could possibly have. The distinction with science is that it actually tries to falsify what it believes. It tries to find ways to test it that it can actually be disproven. So one example may be, um, you know, you might say, my whole life the sun has always risen every day, therefore tomorrow the sun will rise. This is a kind of um, a verification point of view where we look for confirming evidence. But just because something has always happened doesn't mean that it will continue to happen in the future. Uh, for example, you know, one day maybe uh, the sun will explode and then we'll find out about it, I think, is it 12 minutes? Around 10 minutes later. We talked about the difference between induct inductive versus deductive reasoning. Uh, inductive reasoning meaning going from the specific to the general. So you see one white swan, you see another white swan, you see a few more white swans, and then from that you induce that all swans must be white. And then you, find, you come to Australia and you find you're, 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 no, you're wrong. Uh, which is the problem with inductive reasoning. Um, it's not what they call truth-preserving. It can't guarantee the truth. But it can, it's kind of probabilistic, so it's not something that you can uh, discard, and, and it's still a very important kind of uh, reasoning. The other deductive goes from the general to the specific. So, you know, the idea, um, like the solipsism, you know, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, is a kind of deductive reasoning. You're going from the general, all mankind, to the specific, um, which is Socrates. And the difference with deductive is if the, if the premises are correct, so if you agree that all men are mortal and you agree that Socrates is a man, then logically the conclusion has to be correct. So it's an example of a truth-preserving um, argument. We looked at pseudoscience, and what is pseudoscience? It's hard to kind of define, but the basic idea is it takes certain elements of the scientific method to make it look more scientific, but it leaves out some of the important sort of core elements of science. So sometimes it's not so easy to divide up uh, science and pseudoscience, and through history, the border has shifted, for example, a lot of the famous early um, astronomers were, did astrology. Uh, so, yeah, these things shift as our, I guess, body of knowledge changes. So the question, the problem of trying to divide up what is science and what is pseudoscience is known as the demarcation problem. And the way that we were taught to, come to address this is to ask yourself, 14 key questions when you see a claim or theory. So number one, does the claim lack connectivity with established facts? So if someone says something which is completely at odds with anything that's scientifically been proven before, if someone um, you know, says that uh, health, is, health and ill health is due to an invisible fairy, that resides in your temporal lobe and that cannot be detected by science, 
by any scientific you know, instrument, it doesn't have any connectivity with any established fact or theory. And so that would, you'd put a question mark on that. Number two, is it an extraordinary claim that is not supported by extraordinary evidence? So this is like Carl Sagan's you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, and it's related also with the first point, I think, because to the, if something is well connected with established facts, it's not an extraordinary claim. If something is not well connected, the, the more outlandish it is, the more extraordinary uh, it is, and the more evidence. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It just means you need really good evidence. So, for example, you know, UFOs, if you, if you claim that there is an intelligence out there uh, elsewhere in the, the universe, and it's come all the way here through space-time, and it looks more like us. It looks quite like us, actually, surprisingly, with bigger eyes, and they have recognizable spaceships, and they're flying around and um, disemboweling cows and stuff like that. That's an extraordinary claim. And if you, your evidence is only that someone saw it, or I heard of someone who saw, who've seen it, that's not really sufficient evidence. Number three, is the claim based on anecdotal evidence? So anecdotal evidence just simply means so individual cases, um, you know, like you can say, uh, I knew someone who knew someone who once um, got sick from uh, when they ate um, asparagus, and therefore asparagus is bad for your health, and that's anecdotal evidence. And anecdotal evidence is not necessarily something that can be discarded, but if you have a claim that's primarily based on anecdotal evidence, and that is a, a danger sign. Does the claim lack falsifiability? And this is a key thing we talked before about falsification and the important role that that plays in science. Now, if that claim, if there is anything that can be tested and the people who believe that claim will not believe that claim, um, then that is a good sign. But there are some theories out there which are so elastic that it can accommodate any kind of counter-evidence. Counter you just adopt the, adapt the theory to explain, explain it. You say, oh, that person didn't believe in it or something like that, or there's some negative energy, right? Like my wife went to a fortune teller and had warned her about cold reading, so she wasn't responsive to this fortune teller at all. I didn't provide any um, information, which is what a lot of these fortune tellers, I would say all of them, rely on um, and the fortune teller didn't have anything to work with and so in the end she just said oh i'm sensing a lot of negative energy from you therefore the spirits aren't talking to me so that's just a this is a case of a claim that lacks falsifiability because nothing you can do will show that they are false or show to them that they are false number five is there an alternative explanation so um especially for extraordinary claims but with anything um there may be more than one explanation and you can't just pick, you can't just cherry pick one. Excuse me. And then we've got another one, which is number six, which is uh, related to the uh, number five, which is the Occam's razor. So is there, an ex is there an alternative explanation that is more parsimonious, something that's more simple? So historically, you know, one of the most famous examples of this, I think, is with... Um, Copernicus, or the idea before Copernicus, at least in sort of the Christian West, was that the Earth was in the center of the world and all the heavenly bodies circled around orbited Earth. But to account for the retrograde motion of the planets, because the planets aren't 
of course, the other planets aren't going around the Earth, of course, and so they don't follow a smooth orbit around our, our heavens. They kind of go forward and back, which is the reason why the word planet actually means wanderer. In order to account for that, you had to have this really complex system where they, you had like spheres within spheres and balls within balls and stuff like that. And Copernicus said, well, just intellectually, I don't have any evidence. I mean, I had to wait for Galileo for that. But intellectually, just a really messy solution. What, wouldn't it be simpler if everything went around the sun and we along with it? So this is an example of an alternative explanation to something that is observed, which is a simpler uh, observation because scientifically, you know, you would tend to go, I mean, if all, all things being equal, the simpler solution is probably the right one. Number seven, could the event relationship have happened by chance? Because I think pe humans have a, a really difficult time with the concept of chance because chance rules a lot of life and the world around us. And we don't want to admit that that is the case. And so we see patterns in everything. You know, if we have a dream about our mother and the next day our mother calls us, we don't even stop to consider that it could be coincidental and that there are many occasions where you might have dreamt of your mother and she didn't call or she called when you didn't have a dream about her. Uh, you, you see patterns. I mean, we are, our brains are like, you know, someone said, uh, pattern recognizing or pattern making machines. We love patterns because the, if you can see patterns, then it increases your predictive power, which is adaptive. So, you know, we, we really hunt for patterns because there's patterns all around the seasons, you know, day and night, our, our circadian rhythms, etc. Number eight is a causal relationship in claim based on correlational data. So this is the old um, kind of chestnut uh, causation is not correlation. I'm not sure whether it may be settled around correlation is not causation. I'm not sure. So just because two things are related, uh, they, that they vary in the same direction or, you know, maybe they can actually vary in the opposite direction, but that they are somehow, if you know one variable, you kind of can know the other to an extent, such as the uh, correlation between height and weight. The height, if, if you know someone's very tall, you can safely guess that they must be reasonably heavy at least. Uh, an example of this might be, um, you know, the correlation between beach drownings and the sale of ice cream, um, which are positively correlated. Does that mean that eating ice cream makes you drown? No, because there is actually uh, a third variable, which is the the weather, the, the season in summertime, it's hotter, so people eat more ice cream and people go swimming more. If there are more people swimming, that there'll be more drownings, even if the percentage is um, still the same. The next, which is number nine, if causation is claimed, is it based on a research study that did not use a control group? So control groups are very important in science, including in psychology. So, you know, if you want to, if you claim that vitamin C can um, get rid of your cold, and this is quite a common claim, and you do an experiment by getting a group of people, giving them vitamin C, and saying, this will make you feel better, and then you ask them afterwards, did it make you feel better? And they say, yes, and you say, yes, this proves my hypothesis. Well, that's not, that's, that causation is ill-claimed because they did not use a control group. Uh, there could be any number of reasons these people felt better. It could be the placebo effect, where when they placebo effect, just meaning if you expect something will help you, it will help you. Uh, and this is 
in contrast to the nocebo effect where you think if you think something will hurt you, um, it will hurt you. And some people actually say that the nocebo effect is more powerful than the placebo effect. And second of all, it could be just uh, a regression to the mean. Um, if people feel particularly bad, the probability is that they will feel a bit better in the future. So for example, uh, that's why things like you know headaches, um, it's a really tough thing sometimes to test because even if you did nothing, you, you would get better um, with time. So you could do any kind of weird magic on someone and claim that they, it helped their, their headache, headaches. And the importance, of course, of doing, you know, for example, blind testing and double blind testing where the participants don't know that they're being tested. So the placebo effect is accounted for and the double blind uh, testing where even the experimenter doesn't know uh, who is who, who is having the real agent and with who is having the placebo so that the, some of the experimenter bias doesn't come into play. Number 10, um, and this is a really common one, um, is there a single cause, a magic bullet being claimed? Because life is complicated and it is multifaceted. So there are usually any number of causes for any particular effect. And whenever you hear of people talking about what is the cause, you have to always um, approach that with some doubt. For example, the whole very emotional debate in the United States about gun violence. Um, and then you have one side saying it's because of the availability, the easy avail availability of guns, and the other side saying, no, it's about mental health problems or, vi or violent video games. Well, it doesn't have to be one of those things. It could be all of those things. It could be a number of other things as well. I mean, it's, uh, life is very complicated. Number 11, are the findings being generalized based on a small biased or unrepresentative sample? So this is kind of, I guess, in, the, in a spectrum going from on one end, one end you got anecdotal evidence, or maybe going to the extreme one end, you just have a case of one, one thing like a case study. And on the other hand, um, you have a you know, super duper study which is, you know, has double blind and has representative groups and stuff like that. And somewhere in the middle, but, but towards the bad side, you have uh, findings based on uh, studies where maybe the sample size is too small, or maybe it's unrepresentative. So, for example, uh, that famous election in the United States, um, where um, they had done a telephone, I think this is before the Great Depression, I think it was with FDR, they had done some sort of telephone poll to try to find out who people would vote for. But in those days and during the Great Depression, not many people had phones, rich people had phones, so it was unrepresentative. They were getting sample only from rich people and they therefore thought FDR was going to lose, but he actually won quite easily. 12, was the claim published without first being subjected to peer review? So peer review is um, very important. Um, sometimes, I mean, if, if you look at certain claims and you look at, because every claim nowadays has some sort of quote-unquote study that supports it, but if you look at it and it's not, it hasn't been published in a respected peer-reviewed journal, then you have to raise question marks, of course. Nowadays, there's lots of you know, issues around peer review and um, the replication of studies and stuff like that. But still, it is better, uh, relatively better than something that's in some dodgy uh, paper that's never been peer reviewed. 
Number 13, is the claim unable to be replicated? So that's very important. I just mentioned it before as well. Replication is at the heart and soul of science. And um, uh, in psychology, there's something known as the, the crisis of uh, the repli replication of replicability because someone went through all these uh, previously published studies and they found that a lot of them could not be replicated. And I think it, there's a number of reasons for this problem. One reason being the, the publication bias where uh, publications and journals want to publish something that's kind of groundbreaking and eye-catching and the media is going to get into it. And they don't really care about the nuts and bolts, you know, the, um, the, the basic kind of study which just kind of strengthens or disproves previous claims. And so they tend to publish the things which are more likely to be not replicated in the future and that we need to change this. Um, and, you know, it's the whole bias also in universities and stuff as well. Um, and because it's so important to be published in order to become, to get a position as a professor. And 14 has, pers has persuasive or biased language been used. So if this one we didn't really talk about much, but I guess the idea is if, if the, the people trying to convince you about a claim, they use very emotive language, it doesn't mean that the claim is wrong, but you just have to be a little bit cautious because they're using rhetoric to try to, to influence you, which maybe suggests that the, the core the logic of their claim might be spurious. So, yeah, we also talked about correlation and causation, which I already touched on. So I think, yeah, we talked about um, illusory correlation, uh, which is a tendency to see, um, well, kind of meaning behind chance events. So this is, I guess, like, you know, waking up and having dreamt of your mother and your mother calling you. And this is derived from our illusion of control. Uh, you know, we like to believe that we control things. And this explains, for example, I, I don't like to buy lottery tickets because um, as my, one of my former professors of statistics told me, told us, um, the, you know, lottery is a tax for people who fail the high school math. Um, and if you really know the odds, you realize that there's no gain to be had from lottery. Uh, but if you, when you buy lottery tickets, they actually give you some instructions about how to pick. They will say things like, don't bunch your numbers together, you know, spread them out. It's not never going to be one, two, three, four, five, six. It's going to be some, something kind of more random looking and don't pick something that's been picked recently. And they're all, they're books, there's a whole industry, cottage industry of advice on how to win. And the simple fact that anyone who has any understanding of probability uh, knows is that it doesn't matter. You can pick one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It, you'll have exactly the same chance. Just because something looks more random doesn't make it more likely. I mean, it's, they're all equally possible. That's the, that's the nature of, of randomness. And uh, we also talked about credibility very briefly. So when you hear a claim, how credible what, what credibility do you assign to it? So they distinguish between credibility of sources and credibility of claims. With credibility of sources, the two most important thing, number one, is it an interested or disinterested party? So a disinterested party doesn't mean someone who is not interested. It just means someone who does not have 
uh, skin in the game, someone who does not benefit if you believe or if you don't believe. So, for example, if you go to a car yard and you go to a salesperson, the salesperson tells you this is the best car in the universe, they have, they're not disinterested because if you buy, they'll get a commission. So you should treat that with a um, high degree of skepticism and do your own research. The other important um, measure, metric, is authority. So what is the expertise? Um, and, it, and one key thing is it has to be an expertise in the correct field. Just because you're an expert in one thing doesn't make you an expert in another. Uh, I remember I used to work on nuclear policy issues and there was a lot of you know, Nobel Prize winners who got together and said all nuclear weapons have to be disbanded. But just because you might have um, a Nobel Prize in you know, physics or something like that doesn't actually make you an expert in global politics and you know, uh, geopolitical dynamics. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. I'm not saying uh, don't ban nuclear weapons, though it is more complicated than the way that they make it out to be. Um, so I'm not going to go into that, the politics of it. But just to say that, uh, yeah, just because you have a Nobel Prize and you're an expert in one area doesn't make you an expert in a credible source in other areas. And the second, credibility of claims, which I think we really talked about before already anyway. But just the idea, we, whenever, whenever we look at a claim, there is a basic initial plausibility. And this initial plausibility, uh, for, to gauge that, we have to compare it with our background information. So we all have background information of things we know. And so if a claim is consistent with that, then it has a higher credibility. And obviously, therefore, the more background information you have and the better background information you have, the better you can gauge something's uh, the credibility of a claim. Uh, now we move on to rhetoric, the art of persuasion. So what is rhetoric? Well, ret we, we talk about rhetorical force. And words don't just convey a logical meaning. Words actually have emotive meaning as well. And the choice of words, even if they two words mean exactly the same thing, can have a huge effect on persuasion. So words have rhetorical force. And rhetoric is about how to sort of harness this rhetorical force. Talked about pathos. Pathos, logos, and ethos. Pathos meaning appeal through emotion. Logos meaning the appeal through rational arguments and logic. And ethos meaning appeal through authority, such as you know, moral authority or role leader. So we looked at different groups of rhetorical devices. The first group are known as slanters. So these are words, as I said before, words have rhetorical force. So this is picking the words that slant um, the listener in a particular direction. So euphemism is a very obvious one where you use kind of a positive or maybe a neutral word in place of a negative word. So for example, maybe you know, um, a detainee instead of a, a prisoner, or something like friendly fire when your soldiers are killed by their fellow soldiers. Accidentally, of course. There's the opposite of euphemism, which is dysphemism, where you use an, a negative word instead of a positive or neutral word. For example, you might talk about people eating 
that you could refer to meat as being like animal flesh um, if you are sort of an animal rights activist um, because you want to create a certain emotional, a negative emotional connotation with eating meat. We also have weaslers. Weaslers are used a lot um, in, I guess, in the commercial sphere, in, in sales, where you kind of leave room, a wiggle room, so that you can, no one can sort of call you out. So, for example, I mean, you see this in shops when they say, you know, up to 50% off. The up to is the weasler, because if you say, oh, look, this one's only 5% off, well, they can say, no, no, we said up to, which means 50% off or less. So technically, you could go in and everything has been marked up 100%. It would still be accurate that everything is up to 50% off. Down players is a, a way of trying to dismiss someone or someone's claim, you know, by using words as in, and merely, you know, you could, you could, it, this is like in the classic court scene, courtroom scene in a movie or a TV series where they try to attack um, an expert witness by questioning their qualification. Um, so these are, this is examples of down players. Can't think of any pithy um, examples off the top of my head. Rhetoric devices too, uh, unwarranted assumptions. So these includes uh, stereotypes. So, you know, stereotypes about, you know, race or unemployed or whatever, rich people. Innuendo. So innuendo is what it's, the way it's used in everyday life, you know, where you don't say something explicitly, but you suggest something. And this includes the use of what they call significant mention, mentioning something that does not, you know, should not normally be mentioned. For example, if you say, uh, oh, I noticed um, so-and-so's uh, check didn't bounce, you know, then you are insinuating that their checks regularly bounce. Um, there's also, as people know, loaded questions. So every question has a certain assumption, but when you have a really, I guess, unwarranted assumption. I guess it's kind of a demarcation problem. When is a question a loaded question? But for example, if you ask, you know, why does, why do you hate rich people? You know, you are making an, uh, it's a loaded question because you, because the person can't answer it um, without saying, I hate rich people. So rhetorical devices three is the use of humor and exaggeration. So anyone who's seen so late night comedy, I mean, who you know make fun of politicians, for example, I mean, you can see the power. Of ridicule and they talk about ridicule slash sarcasm also known as horse laugh um, and hyperbole the use of um, hyperbole so an example might be you know in the u.s this is a u.s example i think our book must have been a u.s textbook you know the democrats wants everyone to be on welfare right this is a hyperbole and it's designed to um, persuade people and you have to watch out for hyperboles because they can often be used because people are not normally believe hyperboles, but it could help to persuade you to a lesser claim. So if a waiter says this fish is the best fish that you'll ever eat, you might not believe him, but you're more likely to order it because you might still you might be more willing to believe that it must be a pretty good fish at least. The 
the fourth group of rhetorical devices involves sort of explanations and definitions. Rhetorical definitions is where you define something in an emotive way in order to further your position. For example, the definition defining abortion as being the murder of an un unborn child, for example. Uh, we can also have rhetorical explanations. So you're explaining something rhetorically. So you know, people who buy flashy cars are just compensating for something. It's an example of rhetorical explanation. Rhetorical analogies is where you liken two things together. Uh, sometimes to make them, you know, to contrast if one is better or worse, but also sometimes to draw a similarity between the two, such as, you know, everyone likes to make analogies, uh, rhetorical analogies with Adolf Hitler, for example, like so-and-so is just like um, Adolf Hitler. There, uh, and also when things, people make comparisons between things, like something is better or something um, is smart, someone is smarter, you, you have to ask yourself, you know, how precise is a comparison? Is it, is it vague? Um, is, it, is important information missing? For example, if you talk about the, the unemployment rate of one country being lower than the other, well, how do they measure unemployment rate? Maybe, it's, maybe there are differences which account for the, the actual difference in the, the rates themselves. Um, is the same standard of comparison being used? Are the items even comparable? Are you really comparing apples with oranges? Um, like, uh, how about averages? Is it being expressed as an average? For example, if you have two cities and you talk about the average rainfall, but in one place you have like dry season and a monsoon and the other places rain throughout the, the year, it's not really a fair comparison. You can't say they have the same sort of, you know, rain pattern. We also talked about proof surrogate and the power of repetition. So proof surrogate is just where you're suggesting that there is evidence or there is an authority without actually being able to offer these. Uh, you know, when people talk about, as we all know, or informed sources, they say, or there are many statistics which, which back me up on this point. This is an example of proof surrogacy or you know, proof surrogates. Repetition, so you know, the idea that if you keep repeating an argument over and over again, if you keep repeating a claim over and over again, eventually that kind of dulls people's critical faculties. And politicians use this very well because they have certain talking points and you listen to politicians being interviewed, no matter what the questions you will, you will um, and I, this is true in Australia, I'm sure it's true in many other parts of the world, they will just repeat their talking points over and over again. And one of the ideas, well, first of all, it's easier for them than to come up with new things to say. It's safer, I suppose. And also, it, when people hear the same messages over and over again, people tend to kind of believe it. Though there is all, sometimes it can backfire and people can react badly when they keep hearing the same message being repeated, especially if it's being repeated sort of verbatim and too obviously. Uh, the, we also talk about uh, demagogues and um, the way that they try to persuade. Uh, so there's four broad rhetorical techniques used by dem demagogues. So otherizing, which is the idea that you divide between people into us and them. You know, we are good, they're terrible. Demonizing, so trying to portray other people as being 
evil um, and worthy of our loathing is obviously quite closely related to otherizing. Xenophobia or fostering xenophobia, fear of something that's foreign, fear of something that's strange, and fear and hate mongering, which um, tries, well, it's clear what, what uh, it involves, but it primes people to be willing to accept more hatred and more violence into the future. I think that was all I was going to talk about. Um, this has taken longer than I thought, so I will complete this uh, unit in episode 11. So until next time, bye for now.